Welcome back to another episode of Anthology of Horror, ladies and gentlemen, I'm your host, and today I am definitely your narrator, Springheeled Jack, and today I'm going to be taking it back to basics, old format with scary short stories for the road, round whatever this is, round four or five or six or seven, I can't count, I also can't read, coincidentally. And these are going to be international ghost stories, as told by me and my sometimes very racist accents. If you're just tuning in for the first time, this is going to be an ad-free, guaranteed podcast listening experience. At no point during the episode will I interrupt the natural flow that I have built up over the course of the episode to talk about boner pills or uh, whatever sex website I'm going to sell you a fuck toy from. There will be none of that. Maybe I'll make up a product and try to sell you that, but it's all about you. Nobody wants to hear advertisements when they're trying to listen to a story. Everything I do, I do for you. Everything I do, I do for you, pee-pee. It's my, my grandpa voice. My grandfather, specifically. Anyway, this first story is for... I'm not doing an accent. This first story is from Africa, and it's titled Brother and Sister. No. There was once a stubborn girl who refused to marry any of the young men who came to ask for her hand in marriage. The men offered her father cattle and goats in exchange for his daughter. Sounds like a good deal, man. But the young girl would have none of them. All right. Progressive. Finally, her parents grew angry and said that she would marry the next suitor that came for her. Soon after this, there was a great dance in the village. And all the young men from all the other villages came. A very tall and handsome man arrived, wearing a headband made of gold. All the unmarried bitches tried to catch his eye, but the young woman, who had refused to marry, was the first to speak to him. When it came time for dancing, he saw to it that he danced very close to her, and she soon fell in love with him. That was quick. Later, the young man asked for the daughter's hand in marriage, and her mother and father joyfully agreed. Why would they be joyful about that? They're getting married after the first night of dancing. My daughter, I'd be fucking pissed. But during the feasting that followed, while everyone laughed and shouted and ate sugar canes, oranges, bananas, and guava, the little girl's, or excuse me, the girl's little brother saw that the stranger had a second mouth on the back of his head, which was the sure mark of a demon. He told his mother what he had seen, but she only said, What foolishness to think that this fine young man is evil. You are wicked to make up such a story, you little fucker. Be quiet and share in your sister's happiness. When he went to tell his old man, his old man said, Same thing. Adding that he would beat his fucking ass if the boy made trouble. And he would beat his fucking ass if any of his friends did anything but laugh at him. See, that's accountable. Even if your friends do something, you're getting fucked up. Ah. So, the wedding was celebrated. After several days, the girl and her husband set off for his home, which was a great, great distance away. But, her brother, who was worried because of what he had seen, followed them. As the couple walked along, the husband asked, Can you still, can you still see the smoke from your parents' village? Yes, his new wife answered. Then... He shrugged and they walked along further in silence. A little further up the road, he said, Can you still see the hills behind your parents' home? I can see the tops just above the trees, she said. Then they walked farther still. At last, he said, Can you see the smoke on the hill that marks your own hope, old home? Nay, she replied. They have disappeared. Then we are in my land. And he brought her to a one-room mud hut. It looked like one of the Madili a temporary house that people lived in when they were away from their real homes. But the grass thatch was black with soot of years. There was no shamba, that is a vegetable garden near it, but the hut was surrounded by a bama, a fence built of thorn branches, like an enclosure where cattle were kept, with only a single small opening in it for a gate. Far away, the girl could hear the sound of rushing water. There were only a few poor mats and broken pots inside, and the young wife was extremely disappointed. Because she loved her husband, she only said, Have you any green maize or beans or sweet potatoes so that I can fix a meal for you? For it was growing very late in the day. 
I will eat soon enough, said her husband. Sorry. <laughs> Fuck. But the girl persisted. Surely you have some The roasted meat her people kept on hand for emergencies, said Jerky. I will eat very soon, her husband replied. Then he sat in the door of the hut and would say nothing else. She set to work cleaning up the place, which seemed like an animal had been living in there. And when the shadows lengthened, the man rose suddenly and walked down the path into the woods. His new wife called out to him not to leave her alone or risk the dangers of the forest, but he ignored her. Soon the shadows under the trees ate him. (laughs) Now, the little brother was hidden at the edge of the wood, watching. He secretly followed the man. In a clearing, he saw the man began to change into a hyena. Then the creature threw back its head and shrieked, and the boy, still hidden, heard answering shrieks from all around. In a moment, the boy guessed that his sister had been lured to this place to be eaten by the demon and his forest kin. So the boy raced back to the hut, told his sister what he'd seen, and at first, she also refused to believe him. I think this brother may have had a bit of a reputation going into this, because everyone just looked at him and told him to go fuck himself. He may have uh, cried wolf or cried a hyena a couple of times, huh? But her husband's strange actions and the howls of approaching hyenas forced her to believe her brother. Because they did not dare try to outrun the beast, they rearranged the thorny branches that made up the boma fence around the hut to block the only opening. When the animals reached the hut, they found it completely circled by a wall of thorns. At first, the creatures only snarled and padded around the walls outside the fence. Then the demon, who was far larger than any true hyena, sprang over the wall of thorns. The boy and his sister had hidden in the hut and tied the wooden door shut with strips of hide. But the hyena was hurling himself against the door, and they knew that it wouldn't last very long. So they climbed out the single small back window, the back of the hut, and onto the roof, just like you do in State of Decay. Just as the beast burst through the entrance, they were on the roof. There they found a low-hanging tree branch just within reach. Now we must climb for our lives, the boy said. His sister boosted him up because he was lighter. Oh, fucking rude. Then, when he was safely lying at length on the branch, he stretched down his hand and helped her up. But since she was whale size, he couldn't lift her. And a moment later, the hyena realized what they had done, and he scrambled onto the roof after them. Guess he... I don't know how he managed that. But the sister and brother climbed higher up under the branches of the tree where the beast could not follow them. There's a very scary illustration of them high up in the branches of the trees. And then the creature leapt back over the boma with a cry, and the other hyenas gathered in a circle around the trunk of the tree. Led by the demon, with their powerful jaws, they made short work of chewing through the tree. Man, they drew the short straw on this labor detail, man, that's for sure. But the boy and his sister fled to another tree. The old switcheroo. Just as the trunk of the first one was bitten through, so it toppled with a crash. And as quickly as they reached a new tree, the hyenas began biting that trunk too, so they were forced to flee again. This went on up until just before the dawn. They came to a tree that grew beside the fast-flowing river. To the right and left, there were no trees close enough or big enough to help them. And the beasts had bitten halfway through the last tree that they were on now. Now we must swim, cried the boy. Before his sister could say anything, the tree fell into the swift river with a splash. They began swimming for the far shore, and snarling, the demon hyena plunged into the water immediately after them. The remaining animals, howling and snapping, ran up and down the bank, but wouldn't go near the water. We can't both get away, gasped the girl. I'll let him catch me and you can escape. We're almost to shore, her brother answered. Keep swimming. Just as they reached the sandy bank, the dawn began to break and the demon turned back into human form. Now it was the tall young man who was swimming after them, but his eyes were that of an angry beast. And he growled like a forest creature. The brother and sister began throwing rocks at him so that he could not land. He bellowed at them and threatened them, but they just kept pelting him with little rocks so he couldn't get near. Let ye who's without sin cast the first stone. Read Read that in a book somewhere once. When he began to tire, he turned and swam back to the other side of the shore. But the current was too strong for him and his sissy legs. He skipped leg day, you see. And it was too fast for him in his weakened state. 
and he was carried away and drowned. Then the boy and the girl returned home where they were welcomed happily by their parents. The little boy was called a hero, not liar. And the tale of their terrifying adventure became well known throughout the land. And those those two, Hansel and Gretel. Not Hansel and Gretel, just being funny. Mm. We have another one from my favorite state. Any guesses? Give you a hint. I once referred to it as a third world country. And this story is from the United States of America, Virginia. And it's called The Lovers of Dismal Swamp. There is a swamp in Virginia with an open stretch of water at its very heart. Some people call this Drummond's Pond, but it's also known as the Lake of the Dismal Swamp. For almost 200 years, folks say it's been haunted by two sad ghosts. And this right here is their story, as told by an honest Virginian. The daughter of a family that had settled near the marsh contracted swamp fever. For fuck's sake. (laughs) For days she lingered, while the young man who planned to marry her sat by her bedside, holding her hand tightly, but never letting go. Oh, that's fucking adorable. He seemed to think that he could hang on to her life, which was slowly slipping away. Yeah, maybe you should do something, homeboy. But, unfortunately, he was unable to hold on to her soul, and she died and was buried at the edge of the swamp. The young man was so grief-stricken that he refused to go to the funeral. You're a fucking asshole. For days, he refused to eat or sleep. Nor would he listen to any words of comfort from anybody. Sounds to me like he was melting down a bowl, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> After much pleading, his family and friends convinced him to begin taking care of himself again, and he did recover a measure of his health. But his mind was never the same. All right, I hear that. He began to fancy that his bride-to-be was not dead, but had merely wandered into a silent, shadowy depths of Dismal Swamp. She's waiting for me there, he told his friends. She's been hiding because she knew death was looking for her. Later, his family heard him mutter, I'll go and find her, goddammit. Old death comes looking for her. I'll hide her in the hollow of a cypress tree till he goes away. The young man's family feared that he uh, might harm himself. So they kept him confined to the house, specifically in a closet and watched him day and night to keep him from going off to look for his lost love. But one day, he slipped away and ran into the swamp when someone had to sleep at some point. For a short time, he heard his father and brothers and a friend calling his name as they searched for him. But he only plunged farther and farther into the marsh. Finally, the sounds of pursuit were swallowed up in the distance and the silence of dismal swamp... All around him was broken only by the cry of a water bird, the splash of a frog, and the persistent buzz of insects. For days he wandered, eating berries and bugs, sleeping on hills of dank grass. (laughs) Sleeping on hills of dank grass and curled in the roots of trees. His face and hands and clothes were torn by brambles. His boots were caked with mud. Surprised he's wearing shoes, to be perfectly honest with you. Several times, he narrowly avoided a run-in with a poisonous water snake that slithered over the wet earth. E2 serpent? Yes. At last, he reached Drummond's Pond late one evening. A will-o'-wisp hovered over the surface of the water far out from the shore. There she is, he told himself. And he started looking through the fallen darkness of the bobbing light. He cried excitedly. I see her. She's standing there holding a lantern. Quickly, he began gathering together fallen cypress boughs to fashion into a raft. Fucking crazy MacGyver. When the flimsy-ass craft was ready, he launched it in the water using a long tree limb stripped of its leaves to pull towards the center of the pond. He was sure he could see his woman floating, so her feet rested lightly on the black surface of the lake, smiling at him. In her right hand, she held a lantern high like a pale beacon to guide him. With her left hand, she beckoned him to join her. It's actually kind of sad. I'm coming, darling, he called, and shoved the long pole even deeper into the murky depths. But his eagerness and a sudden wind that swept across the water, raising the waves, undid him. His, they say hastily, I say poorly built raft, came apart, and he sank, splashing and crying out his love's name in the dark, never to rise again. But, 
hunters who have found themselves near Drummond's Pond when the sun is setting, claim to have seen a ghostly raft drifting quietly over the black water. At the front sits the wraith of a young girl holding a lantern that gives off pale light. Behind her is a ghastly man who pulls them along as they vainly search for a way out of Dismal Swamp. Why would they want out, though? They're in there together. It's quiet. It sounds fucking relaxing to me. I thought they would, like, help the other people that got lost in there out. That's fucking lame. And I remembered where it's from. <laughs> okay, this one is from... Based on folklore of the Shetland Islands. Shetland. Shetland Islands, excuse me. And it's called... Boneless... For a long time, people in the Shetland Islands told stories about a creature that could only be called boneless or simply it. I worked with a guy that we called that. Because no two people who encountered it ever saw quite the same thing. When asked to describe it, one person said it looked like a large jellyfish. Same. Probably the guy that I work with. Another said it looked like a lump of wet white wool. Fucking no shit. Same shit. A third said it looked like a pale animal. Man, with no legs. I think they're describing this guy I work with. And a fourth said, ghastly white human body without any head. I missed the ball on that one, but three out of four is not bad. Yet, for all the people often claimed it had no legs, it could move faster than a dog. Some swore it could fly faster than a hawk, even without wings. Hmm? It was most often seen around Christmas time, when the nights are the longest and the goblins and other strange creatures have the greatest power to plague people. Mm-hmm. Only goblin I ever saw was in the labyrinth. There was a certain farm that it troubled every year at Yuletide. The creature would frighten the animals in the barn and make its presence known to everyone in the house, urinate on the children, and frighten the women and the servants so that they all huddled in terror on Christmas Eve. Sometimes the farmer or his wife would catch a glimpse of something milk-white and wet slapped up against the window of the kitchen parlor but it would be gone in a blink of an eye so that neither could say for sure what they had seen. As a result of this tomfoolery, everyone was so tired and pissed off the next morning that Christmas Day was ruined. The inhabitants of the farmhouse spent the short day napping and dreading the early onset of night when the thing would come to haunt them again. But one Christmas Eve, however, the farmer vowed to his wife, I'll not put up with this again. When boneless comes, I'll chase it away for good and forever. I've had it with this motherfucking boneless on this motherfucking night, he said. His wife pleaded with him not to risk angering it. It hadn't hurt anyone. It just gave them the frights. But if her husband made it angry, she reasoned, who knew what an unnatural creature like that would do? But her husband's mind was made up. When evening came, he asked his wife to gather the little, sh the little shits and the servants in the dining room with the curtain drawn, and he was going to sit in the parlor reading the good book known as the Bible by the light of the candle. He had an axe resting on the leg of his chair. Doesn't he have a gun? Oh, wait, no, Shetland Islands? No, he does not have a gun. Toward, toward midnight... He was suddenly alarmed by a sound like a huge mass of wet meat slapped against the front door. That's not appealing at all. Snatching up his Bible in one hand and his axe in the other, he yanked open the door and he rushed out. There was a pool of wetness. Oh my god. There was a pool of wetness gleaming on the doorstep in the moonlight, but nothing else. Far down the road, he saw something pale like a puddle of moonlight and large as a calf. Moving down the road towards the cliff that overlooked the sea. With a shout of triumph. Yep! He chased after the fucking thing. Just as it was about to flop over the cliff and escape into the sea, the farmer shouted, The good Lord guides my hand! And he hurled an axe which struck fast in the slimy creature. I feel like this whole thing is just a really gross sexual analogy. After that, the thing made no movement or sound. It was defeated. Not daring to go any closer, on his own at least, the man ran back home, where he gathered the servants and persuaded them to accompany him to the spot. It ain't no fun if the homies can't get none. And their boneless was, like some large pudding sack, with the axe still sticking in it. 
What's to be done with it now? asked one young man. Bury it, said the farmer, shaking now that the deed was done. So the men fetched shovels and they hastily began to fling fling earth over the carcass. None of them could tell what it looked like. It all looked like something different to each. It looked like something different to each one of them. But as they worked to bury it, they all got into arguments because the creature looked different to all of them. Some were not sure if it was truly dead, and no one, not even the farmer himself, would go near enough to recover his axe. So the tool was buried along with it. It's a waste of fucking axe, man. When no trace of the creature could be seen, they dug a wide trench around the mound of earth so that neither man nor beast would disturb it. But, in fact, people of the neighborhood never went near that spot again. Ah. In the spring, however, a visitor to the island who stopped for the night at the farmhouse heard the story and eagerly asked the farmer and his wife for details. Believing it only a local superstition, but a curious one nonetheless, the stranger went to the mound the very next day. He found that part of the ditch wall had collapsed so that it was easy enough to scramble across the heap of earth. Digging with his hands like an asshole to find... Uh, to see if he could find it hidden in the mound of dirt, he suddenly saw a thick, curdled light gathering in the hollow, and he scooped it out. It turned suddenly to a milky mist that gathered around him, dense as a fog from the sea, but pale as if it was steeped in moonlight, though it was still midday. Frightened, he backed away from the mound and hurried across the crumbling earth to the other side of the ditch. He just reached safety there when something rose out of the hole, rolled itself across the trench, and vanished into the mist in the direction of the ocean. By the time the visitor had reached the farmhouse, the strange milk-white mist had become an ordinary gray fog, and he had calmed down somewhat, realizing that he was hysterical, but he was sure of what he had seen. Something quite unnatural which had just appeared. But it must have been something natural that only appeared to be unnatural because of how frightened he was by the stories of the strange creatures that he wanted, he didn't want to admit it. Surely, when I saw, it was nothing more than an otter or a seal. Maybe a bald albino otter or seal, he said. Something something that happened to be near the mound when I, when I chanced to be there by some stroke of strange coincidence. But the farmer merely shook his head because... We all know there's many kinds of life that live in the air, on the earth, or in the water, and we poor mortals have not the power to understand the like of some of them. The stranger did not get into an argument with his host, though he thought the man was a superstitious dipshit bumpkin, and he was angry at himself for even believing the goddamned fucking story in the first place. Two nights later, a traveler who had become somewhat lost <laughs> was hiking along a stretch of road high above a cove. He had just located the pinpoints of light that marked the village he was seeking and he was heading towards, and he could hear the waves breaking on the rocks far below him. Suddenly, in the moonlight, he saw something long and white stretched across the road. It wasn't fog, though it had a wet, misty look to it. He couldn't see the lights of the distant town any longer. The whiteness began to slither toward him as if it were alive. This is an analogy for sex, I think, or something. Without hesitating, he turned and began to run back the way he came, presenting his backside to the white thing. But the thing overtook him from the rear in an instant. <laughs> it wrapped itself around him so that he felt like he was being smothered in a heavy, wet blanket. It was as cold as if it had been soaked in the night sea and smelled of rotten fish. <laughs> Then he felt his waist, legs, and ankles caught in nooses, like an octopus tentacles. His bonds glowed like ropes of moonlight, but they were tough as the hardiest seaweed. They began dragging him towards the cliff's edge, the ocean below, a plunge and certain death. He tried in vain to call for help, but he was so scared the sound that came out of his throat... As surely as if an assassin's cord had tightened around his neck, and it just presented a meager squeak. He scrambled for a claw hold on the stony path. <laughs> but his fingernails scraped and slid over the hard rocks without giving him anything to grab onto. Just as he felt his feet, his knees, and his thighs being yanked over the edge of the cliff, called it the wheelbarrow. <laughs> In the instant before he tumbled off into the hungry darkness, he managed to hook his left arm around a sharp outcropping of rock. 
He flung his right arm around it also and hung on for dear life. From this dizzying perch, he dared to look below him. Half of him dangled into space, lassoed by silvery ropes stretching down into the darkness, twisting together into a single cable that linked him into a luminous splotch. In the waves hundreds of feet below, the deadly ropes pulled tighter. Constricted. Tighter. He tightened his grip on the rock in response. He had that sickening feeling that he might be torn in two, or the horrible thing that had him in a thrall didn't let go. Oh, sweet Lord, he prayed, and he felt the thing loosen its grasp just a little. Because nothing turns people off like talking about the sweet Lord. What? They're wrapped around you like that. He recalled how the farmer had used a Bible and a prayer to help defeat that fucking thing once. A prayer, a prayer, a prayer. I don't, mm, I need a prayer. I don't know any prayers. But in his fright, he could remember nothing except the prayer he said as a child. Good bread, good meat, rub-a-dub-dub, goddammit, let's eat. At the second mention of God, the loops of the moonlight loosened and then dropped away. Looking below, he saw ribbons of light coiling down, hitting the churning waves with a sizzle like a candle flame being extinguished in a saucer of water. I don't always put out candles, but when I do, I put them out in water, goddammit. For an instant, circles of cold fire spread outward, one after another like ripples in a pond. Then it was all gone. There was only the empty black surf pounding below him. Painfully, he climbed back onto the road where he lay for a long time, just catching his breath and dozing off. When he reached the town, the traveler was too shaken to do anything more than ask when the earliest boat was leaving for the mainland. He left the next day for London, never returned to Shitland. Yee. That is a disgusting way to describe intercourse. But on that note, if you guys have any fucking weird intercourse stories, I'd love to hear them. Don't, don't hesitate to message me. Any intercourse... Let me rephrase it. I don't want just nasty fucking stories. Intercourse ghost stories. Anyone's a bone to ghost? Love to hear about it. Or a vampirist or whatever those fucking succubus, incubus things are. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm being funny. The thing with my jokes is they're not funny. That's the joke. Okay, this next one is from... Uh, not from old Mexico, but indeed from New Mexico, and it's called The Death Waltz. I think they played this at prom. I remember this one. In 1851, when New Mexico was still a territory and had not yet become a state, good old Fort Union was built 90 miles northeast of Santa Fe to protect the people from the Apache Indian raids. Now, this is towing the line about what we talked about the last couple of podcasts. I don't know if I'm good with this one. The fort helped keep the trails open so that the huge red-wheeled freight wagons pulled by teams of mules or yokes of oxen or really, really fat men could bring hardware, calico, and other goods to Santa Fe while taking furs, hides, and Mexican mules and burros back to St. Louis, Missouri. Fort Union was the only spot for miles around where an effort was made to keep up the appearances of gracious social life. The kind that was found east of the Missouri River. There was a number... A very beautiful young ladies attached to the post. <laughs> uh, and the most attractive of them all was Eliza Bidwill, who was, coincidentally, the sister-in-law of the captain. Mm-mm, it's a do-not-fly zone. She'd recently come to Fort Union to stay with her sister, the captain's wife, because her parents were dead, and the maiden aunt who had helped raise Elizabeth, a.k.a. Eliza, was also dead. She enjoyed the excitement that came from living on an outpost where the threat of an Indian attack lurked always in the background. She was doubly delighted by the attention the young officers paid to her, since there were a few women who were both pretty and unmarried in wild country. There was one lieutenant in particular, named Frank Sutter, who recently transferred from the east, and he was especially attracted to Elizabeth's uh, charm. He devoted himself to winning her hand, in spite of the other handsome officers who buzzed around her like bees, Discovering the sweetest blossom in the garden. That is fucking foul. Frank Sutter's experience with the world was not large enough so that he could tell whether a woman was responding seriously to his attentions or was merely fucking with him. Oh, man, he was a kid. He would walk with Elizabeth in the afternoon when the sunny, clear air would turn in the blink of an eye to a heavy rain that sent them scurrying for cover. 
and it disappeared as quickly as it had begun to fall. Sounds like he's not working. They would sit together in the evening. What did he just every day off? Watching the sky turn red, pink, and orange, and yellow to the west, while the mountains to the east of the fort turned dark, purple, and mysterious. At such times, Frank would talk to Elizabeth about many things, but he didn't dare tell the young woman whose hand rested on his crotch just what he felt for her. Elizabeth laughed, fanned herself, and complained about the heat. Some things never change. And chattered on about how bored she was growing with life at Fort Union and how eager she was to return to Missouri and the social life there. Such talk shattered Lieutenant Sutter and his morale. But he never let his pain show. Then one day, messengers came racing to the fort with news of a series of Apache raids. Captain Moore ordered a detachment of troops to chase, punish, and destroy the guilty Indians. Lieutenant Sutter was put in command of the expedition. The night before they were, they were going to set out, though, however, he called to Elizabeth Bidwell. Drawing a private corner of his porch, he dropped to his knee and said, Hey, yo, bitch. Excuse me, he said, Elizabeth, if you, don't, if you couldn't guess this before, I'm telling you now. I'm in love with you. She smiled at him. She turned her head away and patted her heart. <laughs> Finally, she said, Whoa, Lieutenant Sutter, I'm overwhelmed by the honor you're giving me. And why do you have some affection for me? Oh, he said that. And <laughs> do you have some affection for me? You don't even have to ask, she replied. Then, Miss Bidwell, will you do me the honor of marrying me when I return? That's when he fucked himself right there. He was the most handsome young officer at Fort Union, and his prospects were excellent. Elizabeth answered without thought of hesitation. Of course I will. But if the fortunes of war deprive me of life, shut the fuck up, she said. Don't even think about such a thing. If you should fail to return, I swear I will never marry another. That's where she fucked up. Then, he said, rising to his feet and kissing her hand, you can be assured nobody else will have you. I'll come back and make my claim. <laughs> so, the next day, the lieutenant and his troops departed in the morning. On the evening of their second day on patrol, they overtook a band of Apaches that had gone on the warpath, or so they assumed. In the heat of the battle, Frank Sutter became separated from the rest of his men. When dust had settled and the Indians had all been killed or scattered into the dusk, the troops searched vainly for the young lieutenant. But he had vanished, so they committed an act of mutiny, and they returned to Fort Union without their commanding officer and reported him missing in action. As per policy... <laughs> Jesus Christ. Other people at the fort noted, not very kindly, that Elizabeth Bidwell, Frank Sutter's bride-to-be, grieved very little for her missing bridegroom-to-be. And it came as no great surprise to anyone when she announced her intention of marrying a man who recently moved from the East as well, who promised to take her back to St. Louis when his tour was over. Her sister and brother-in-law arranged a wedding for her at the post. When the big day arrived, there was a short ceremony in the chapel, and then everybody retired into the evening to the mess hall, which was decorated for a proper ball. Outside, a sudden thunderstorm rolled through the nearby canyons and sent rain splattering against the roof and the walls of the mess hall. But inside all the festivity, there was good food, plenty of alcohol, and shrieking laughter everywhere. A band was playing with more enthusiasm than tunefulness, but everybody was drunk and having a great time, so nobody fucking cared. At the heart of everything was Elizabeth Bidwell, smiling and fanning herself with $100 bills and swirling her skirts of rose-blush pink. Ugh. Suddenly, when the dance was in full swing, the outside doors of the hall slammed open with a bang, letting in a draught of cold air that made the candles gutter and burn low. A blood-curdling cry, neither human nor like any other bird or creature that anyone through the common room could identify, was carried in on the invading wind. Nobody could identify it. It was something like, All eyes turned to the open doorway. Framed by the doorpost was the body of a dead man, dressed in the stained uniform of a cavalry lieutenant. Across his forehead was a gash the size of a tomahawk blade. His eyes were wide open and burned with a fiery light. As everybody retreated to the edges of the dance floor, the horrible apparition walked across the floor to the new bride and pulled her from the arms of her husband. 
like the rest of the company, she stood gaping, too shocked to move. The corpse led Elizabeth to the center of the floor. She moved as stiffly as a doll. Her mouth working, but no sound coming out. Suddenly, the thing that had been Lieutenant Sutter clasped the young woman closely to him. Then he raised his middle finger in the directions of the musicians. And after the shaken men protested that they did not know what he wanted them to do, they started playing a waltz so strange and haunting that its melody, melody, to some people, made them burst into tears upon hearing it. It's like the Fable soundtrack. And while others pressed their hands to their ears to keep out the sound because it sounded a shrieking cat. On the floor, the couple whirled around and around and around, like dancing with the stars. Elizabeth could not take her eyes from the dead lieutenant's burning eyes, and she grew paler and paler. With each passing turn, she looked more and more like Taylor Swift and less like herself. The musicians possessed by some compulsion from beyond the grave, it seemed, played faster and faster until the music became so frantic that the spinning couple on the floor became a blur of pink skirts and blue uniform. Then the music slowed to a pace that no human could dance to, then back to a waltz, then down to a dirge, which is like a funeral march for you youngsters. The young woman hung limp in her corpse's arms. Her slack jaw and empty eyes showed she was as dead as her partner. Gently, the dead man lowered her body to the floor. For a moment, he stood staring directly at her. Then his eyes circled the horrified company. He threw back his head, gave the same fearful cry that they had heard earlier. Ugh! Then he turned and marched stiffly, stiffly, out into the driving wind and rain. While the doors of the mess hall just slammed behind him. So uh, when people were finally able to move again, her groom rushed to her side, but his efforts to revive her were futile. Just like his efforts to save her life when he was in the mess hall with him, and he was killing her. At a boy new husband, the corpse had vanished into the storm that battered Fort Union for a day and a night. Several days later, troops of soldiers that had been sent out to find the scene of the battle that killed Frank Sutter located his body where it lay at the bottom of a small gully with a single tomahawk gash across his forehead. He was returned to the post and buried beside his almost bride, Elizabeth Bidwell, in a little cemetery outside the fort where he remains today as the she. <sighs> well, they both sound like miserable fucks. Speaking of misery, here's one from my home state. It's probably not going to be very scary. It's called The Ghost of Misery Hill. I think I live on that hill. If not, I work on it for sure. There was once a miner, Tom Bowers, who worked a claim on Misery Hill near Pike City in California. I, where the fuck is that? Tom was a loner. He never liked having people around him. He only went into town when he needed supplies, and he never needed supplies, and he never took a partner. Nobody's going to work my fucking land but me, he told anyone who offered to buy his claim. Or buy into it. During the winter, he laid in supplies and kept to himself. While the snowdrifts piled up high around his cabin, people in Pike City always knew that spring had arrived when Tom came down from Misery Hill to purchase a fresh batch of food shit. But one spring, long after the last traces of snow had melted, the inhabitants of Pike City noticed that old Tom hadn't turned up with his poke of gold dust to buy beans and salted pork, bread and coffee. After a good deal of shit-talking, a group of miners and townspeople rode off to investigate. They found old Tom's cabin was empty. Potbelly stove, stone cold. Some bits of fried bread had gone moldy in the big iron skillet on top of it. Clearly, nobody had been in the one-room shack for at least a week, maybe more. Certain now that something had happened to the old miner, the men followed the path that ran from the cabin to the brink of the steep slope where he had done his prospecting. But they found the end of the trail had vanished. It had been blotted out by a huge landslide. Fearing the worst, they dug into the pile of earth and rock, and after a half day of hard work, they found a shitload of gold, and they also found the old man's body. Then, having solved the mystery, having nothing better to do with Tom's remains, they buried him properly in a shallow grave not far from the mouth of his old mine shaft. Some would say they gave him the shaft. A few miners 
thought to work Tom's mind on Misery Hill, but the story soon grew that the ghost of Tom Bowers was often seen prowling around carrying his old pick near his mine. Soon, everybody avoided that spot. There was one miner. Nobody liked him. His name was Jim Brandon, who got himself so far in debt when his own claim ran out that he became quite desperate. Just fucking move towns, dude. He moved into Tom's long, empty shack and began to work that abandoned mine. Soon enough, he made enough money in that mine that he was able to clear up his debt and accumulate a decent amount of savings for himself. But, after several months, he began to notice signs that somebody else was working his claim by night. Every morning, he could see that somebody had tampered with the sluice, a long wooden trough. He filled every day with freshly dug gravel so he could find the gold. When water from a nearby stream was run down it, bars along the bottom of the sluice would catch any gold and gravel it might hold. Jim searched high and low for a clue to his midnight visitor, but found nothing. Thinking some of the other miners might be having fun with him, he challenged them, but they all swore they knew nothing about it. After this, things were quiet for a few days, and then one morning, Jim, again, found that somebody had fucked with loading the sluice with gravel and running water. When evening came, he loaded his rifle, tired of this shit, and hiding himself in a nook from which he had a clear view of everything, he kept watch for that fucking intruder. For a long time, he heard nothing but the wind whistling through the pines, and the sound of the Yuba River rushing over rocks nearby. He could see the distant ridges of the Sierras gleaming in the starlight, but through his strained eyes, he saw nothing moving near the mine entrance. Then, by the light of a newly risen moon, he saw a notice shining on a nearby tree trunk as though somebody had just tacked it into play. Place. Curious, he walked over and found the odd sign. It was an easy-to-read sign that looked like it had been written by a two-year-old. And it was glowing by itself, not just reflecting the light of the full moon, and it said... Notice, I, Tom Bowers, claim this ground for mining. Sure, now this was the... He, he had to be the victim of practical jokers, so he grabbed the paper, tear it down, but he felt an electric jolt run through his fingertips, all the way up to his shoulder, and then his arm fell numb at his side. Then the notice vanished. At the same time, there came to his ears the sound of gravel being dumped into the sluice. A moment later, he heard water gurgling into it. Then, the rattling and bumping of rocks being tumbled down the length of it, Shaking his arm back into use, he angrily grabbed his gun and headed to the sluice. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw the message was glowing again on the tree trunk, but he ignored it. He heard the sound of a pick biting into gravel. Now, nothing mattered except finding out who was ripping him off while he was ripping off a dead old man. Leveling his rifle, he rounded an outcrop of rock and saw Tom Bowers swinging his pickaxe near the entrance of that mine. The miner turned to stare at Jim, and the frightened man saw at a glance that he was a specter. Tom's tall, skinny frame glowed just like the notice on that tree. His head and face were covered with lank white hair, and his eyes blazed from black sockets. Scared nearly out of his mind, and definitely having soiled himself, Jim raised his rifle to his shoulder and fired at that ghost. The gun's report was followed by a bellow from Tom's ghost. Looking through the rifle smoke, he saw the specter charging at him. His pick raised in both hands. Oh, lordy, cried Jim, and still clutching his rifle, he took off running, with the angry ghost only a few paces behind him. The living led the dead on a wild chase uphill and down and into, the, into and out of the woods, over streams and ditches, and through scrub towards Pike City. In town, the miners were all gathered in the saloon celebrating a new gold strike, and suddenly everybody froze when they heard an ear-splitting scream. <coughs> then there was a sound like a body follow falling, followed by the clang of metal hitting on metal, and then silence. Everyone tumbled outside to see what had happened. It was they saw it in the middle of the road. They found old Jim Brandon's rifle pinned to the ground by the point of a pick, sunk clean through the middle of the barrel, and on the Pick's red handle were carved the initials TB. No one after that saw Jim Brandon ever again. But for years afterwards, miners working near Misery Hill reported the sluice at Tom Bower's claim ran every night like clockwork at midnight. I don't know why this guy was pissed off that a ghost was doing half his work for him. And fucking balls, dude. I wouldn't complain about that. You know, that's one of those, like, leave him a sandwich type of things. 
my, my grandpa had somebody working on his social security number and he didn't realize it till he retired early. God. All right, this one's called something French. The Lou Garou, the werewolf. That's what it means. From French Canadian folklore. I do love old snow Mexico. In the old time in snow Mexico, people believed the werewolf, which they called the Lou Garou. The Loop Growl. The fucking werewolf haunted graveyards and prowled the woods and waited in the brush behind and next to lonely trails to catch unwary travelers and eat them like they were groceries. There were some old fuckers living on a farm far out in the countryside. Fuck. And one wintry night, the woman, Martha, with an E, took very ill and her husband, Pierre, had to go fetch the doctor in town. But that meant that it was going to be a long, lonely journey through the woods. But Pierre was too worried about his wife to hesitate. Good for you, Pierre. He hitched up his horse to the sleigh, and he set out through the light, the fading light and falling snow. As he went along, he could hear nothing except the scrunch, 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 scrunch of the snow underneath the sleigh's runners and the horse's hooves. The old man wasn't thinking of anything, except getting help for his wife as fast as he could. They were now a long way into the woods, and moonlight shone on the snow, which lay thick on the ground and on the branches of the pine trees all around. Sometimes from the deep shadow would come a sharp report of an ice-heavy branch snapping and dropping to the ground. Once Pierre heard an owl hooting. Except for these sounds, silence lay heavily over the forest, and that is what makes you crazy, the fucking quiet, man. The road ahead was level and easy enough for the horse to navigate, but suddenly the animal began to slow down. Pierre shook the reins and shouted, Giddy up! But the horse was hardly moving at all at this point. It was as if he were pulling a two-ton load, rather than a little sleigh with a single, tiny old man in it. The old man lightly flicked his whip, but the horse merely shook its head and made frightened. (laughs) The poor animal was breathing rapidly, his warm breath making clouds in the steam like from a steamboat's chimney. Sweat was running down his ass cheek. Now Pierre could feel some of the horse's fear sinking into him. There was a low growl just behind him. It stood his hair on end. Turning, he discovered what looked like a great big black dog or wolf with its teeth and claws uh, sunk into the back of the sleigh. Oh my God, its hind paws dragging on the ground, bringing the sled nearly to a halt. That is terrifying. For one terrible moment, Pierre stared directly into the creature's burning eyes, and then almost without thinking, he cracked the whip across the monster's snout. Good job, Pierre. The wolf gave a howl of pain and loosened its hold on the sled for a moment. In that instant, the horse lunged forward and ran as if the devils from all hell were in pursuit. Looking over his shoulder, Pierre could see the shadowy creature bounding down the road close behind him. The man knew that unless his guardian angel was riding with him that night, he was fucked. He didn't need to urge the horse to go any faster. The animal was so scared that it galloped like a hurricane or like a horse that was set on fire. But for all that, the monster was getting closer and closer and closer. And then the creature gave a tremendous leap and landed on the back of the sled. The thump of the impact and the sudden weight on the end of the sled sent it sliding first to one side of the road, then to the other. For a moment, Pierre thought that he was going to crash, but miraculously the sleigh kept upright on its runners and he found the center of the road again. The horse, now crazy with fear, somehow managed to keep from falling in the icy road, which was often blocked with drifts of snow. The wolf was growling as it crept towards the old man who had turned to face the beast. Pierre tried using his whip one more time, but the monster wasn't going to get caught in that trick box again. It used its huge jaws and it severed it as if it were no more than a twig and tossed it off the edge of the wild, careening sleigh. Old Pierre fell for his hunting knife and pulled it free, just as the wolf sprang at him, and he slammed the man to the bottom of the sleigh. His forepaws were on Pierre's shoulders, pinning him to the floorboards. The man felt his bones were likely to break under the weight of the monster. For one terrible instant, he felt the creature's whiskers brush his face like needles. Felt its hot breath on his throat, saw its yellow eyes only inches from his own. I'm going to take a pause right now. I'm going to say that the werewolf is probably his wife. That's my prediction. Then with a prayer, he jabbed at the thing with his fucking hunting knife. 
Though his movement was hampered by the weight of the monster on top of him, he managed to nick it just enough to draw blood. So a spot of red appeared on its pelt. Instantly, the creature reared back, howling like nothing Pierre had ever heard before, and then, to the old man's astonishment, the wolf turned into a man. Right away, Pierre knew this was indeed the Lucaro. Because the stories say if you draw blood from the Lucaro, he'll turn back into a man right, right away and run away. Pressing his big, pale hand to his side, the man suddenly leapt off the sleigh. And Pierre saw him rolling down a hillside through the snow where the forest shadows quickly hit him. Then the sleigh was out of the woods and heading towards the sleeping town ahead. Shaking, Pierre returned his knife to its holster and took hold of his reins. Gradually, easing the horse back to a trot, saying, easy, easy. When they reached the gate of the doctor's house, Pierre quickly roused the man, who thought at first the old man was the one who was sick, because he was so pale and trembling. But when Pierre told what had happened, the doctor gave him a shot of whiskey, then roused the village priest, who gave them holy water and a cross as protection for their journey back across the woods. Pierre never saw the Lugaru again, but Martha, when she recovered, made him promise never to travel through the woods alone at night again. And the old man was only too happy to give her his word that he never would leave the house again if he could get away with it. Jesus. Spooky. Fucking Canada has some scary stories, man. Oh, holy shit. I just realized what time it is, and, uh... Anyway, I'm going to end it on that story, because it was relatively spooky, and here we are. So this has been another exciting ad-free episode of the Anthology of Horror, and this episode was short, scary shit for the road. Got a lot of road trip time coming up this summer. You can listen to all of these, plus my other podcasts, ad-free, guaranteed. Just make sure to go ahead and like me, or follow me on whatever podcast server you are using and if you uh, feel that I deserve it please do not hesitate to subscribe and give me five stars please on the iTunes store because it makes everything just a little bit easier uh, so once again I'm going to give a huge massive shout out to the state of Texas because I have noticed the web of different cities lighting up so I know you guys are telling friends or family about the podcast and if not, then Texas just hears about things in the weirdest way possible. But I believe you guys are telling your friends and family. And I can see that they are telling you they're going to listen to it and doing so. And then consistently listening. So thank you very much for spreading the word. I genuinely appreciate it. All new listeners, genuinely appreciate you. And in case you don't know, I do keep an open door policy. If you do or do not like something that I'm doing, please do not hesitate to get in touch with me on Instagram.com slash DukeLandis17 where I will take podcast episode requests. Uh, I will take constructive criticism. Um, I'll hear your confession. I will absolve you of all your sins. Whatever you need. But predominantly, if you have advice for how I can make this better so that it's more along the lines of something a more professionally marketed product for you guys, uh, I can't do it without your help, so I encourage you to get in touch with me. And you can do so at Instagram.com slash DukeLandis17. That's Instagram.com slash D-U-K-E Landis, L-A-N-D-I-S-1-7. Thank you all very much for tuning back in. And if you're new, thank you very much for joining me. You will hear from me on the next episode. And until then, stay spooky.
Thank you. 